Hi. Welcome, everyone. Sorry for the technical difficulties. We're using a new app, and obviously it's, it hasn't worked as well as we hoped. My name is Lainey Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of Schools, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. During the next hour, we'll be talking with the parent leader, Naomi Pena, and advocate Matt Gonzalez about the myriad challenges students and families are facing during the school shutdown period and the new grading policy that the mayor just announced. But first, I'd like to update you on the latest education news. Tonight at the Panel for Educational Policy meeting that starts at 6 p.m., panel members will be voting on a number of DOE contracts, many of them excessive and unnecessary. For example, they're voting on emergency extensions of this year's busing contracts for March and April for $200 million and intend to do this until the end of June for a total of $700 million. This is busing that we aren't using and and the buses are sitting idle in garages across the city. There are other contracts they'll be voting on that don't make much sense, including funding for professional development that's not happening and more consultants. At the same time, the mayor and chancellor are planning on cutting $825 million from the education budget next year, with about $250 million or more directly from school budgets. And if these unnecessary contracts were canceled, he wouldn't have to. The New York City controller, Scott Stringer, has written a letter saying the city's not legally liable for these expenses because of a clause in the busing contracts called force majeure, which means that either party can withdraw in case of a really unusual event like an epidemic. On the New York City Public School Parent blog, there's a video of a press conference we did Monday with elected officials, parents, advocates, and teachers, which called for cutting the contracts to save our schools. On that blog post is also information about how you can call into the PEP meeting tonight, starting at 5.30 to about 6.15 p.m., to get on the speakers list to urge the panel members to cancel these contracts, which are unacceptable at a time of such fiscal crisis. But now I'd like to introduce Matt Gonzalez, an education advocate for integration and also the co-author of a really terrific letter on the school grading issue. Matt, are you there? I am here. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, First, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to this issue? Sure. Um, Yeah, it's kind of silly. Like, I I didn't think um, in the beginning of my career as a kind of policy person that I would be writing about grading policy at at any point. Um, But so... Um, I'm a former special education teacher. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, um, attended public schools um, there basically throughout my uh, K-12 educational experience. Um, I have experience attending segregated schools. Uh, also was um, you know, fortunate to attend a desegregated high school. Um, and so all of those kind of experiences as a student, as an, as an educator as well in segregated schools really have kind of brought me to um, my work um, around school integration. And then, you know, I think the the, the kind of the web of school integration um, spreads quite far. And so um, issues around grading policy and other kind of educational equity issue, issues, I think, fit within that umbrella. And so um, ultimately, you know, the, the issue, the, the, the kind of debate around the grading policy was not something I was trying to get really involved in. But I know that Um, we got word that the city was going to be making decisions and felt like there was a need to um, shift the conversation towards uh, a more equity-based lens. 
So, yeah, one of the issues that parents and students have been very concerned about this year, along with all the other issues and problems they're facing, is how they're going to be graded and how the school shutdown will affect their future opportunities, especially when it comes to being promoted or even being able to graduate from high school. And what the pandemic did was to widen inequities that already existed, given that many students didn't have access to the devices they needed to go online or even the quiet, peaceful environment at home that would allow them to focus on instruction. Can you explain your perspective on the grading issue that was reflected in the letter you helped to draft with other community parent and advocacy groups? Yeah, thank, yeah thanks for kind of laying out that, that, uh, that context. And I think that's really what we tried to communicate through this letter. Um, you know, I've spent the first two weeks of remote learning, you know, having conversations with parent leaders, um, student leaders and, and other advocates and and this you know this kind of just kept coming up on like what you know how students were going to be assessed in this moment um, and, and, and I think you know just it's impossible to for me to kind of not acknowledge that I have you know I have a young person that I work with whose father died um, you know I have other young people whose parents have lost jobs um, others who are, have been who you know who have family members who have been impacted um, in, in a variety of ways um, by this pandemic. And I think as you stated clearly, this, you know, the inequities that we're seeing during remote learning are not new. They are just really have been amplified and replicated in this moment. And so I have a concern that we're just gonna see another um, opportunity gap um, kind of expand around this. And so the idea that we like really had this incessant need to ensure that we are marking and grading young people um, you know, I think for us seemed very, uh, you know, very, very concerning. And, and I think it lacked a lot of humanity and concerns with equity. And so the letter that we framed was really acknowledging the, the, the real like impact of this crisis on our communities, particularly our Black and Latinx communities and low-income communities, but also the, the kind of larger, um, I think, conversation that we need to have about what is the value of you know, assigning grades to young people in the, in the in the midst of a pandemic, and is that really the the instructional and, and educational focus that we want to be reinforcing during this moment of such uh, you know pain and strife? So um, I just thought it was a really terrific letter. I wanted to thank you for helping Thanks. to draft it along with the other community groups. I think it showed that you know at, at this time our first priority really has to be focused on the humanity. Um, and uh, of our kids and not make add any extra stresses onto their lives, which are already so, so profound. Um, can you explain a little bit about um, basically what the mayor and the chancellor announced yesterday in terms of the grading policy that they do intend to pursue? Yeah, I'll try to be brief. Um, so for uh, pre-K, um, there will be no change, which I think is, is a good thing in general. So there, there'll be just a, a focus on developmentally appropriate um, assessments for pre-K. Um, for grades K through five, um, schools will use their existing grading scales, but the final marks will be um, either a meet standards or a needs improvement. Um, but so no student, based on what I'm reading, no student is going to be negatively impacted or penalized um, for what is happening during this pandemic. Um, and, and so I think the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, the kind of kindergarten through grade five, um, oh, sorry. Um, 
school. I think the kindergarten through grade five um, policy is, I think, the most closely aligned with what we were prioritizing in our grading for equity letter, um, but certainly is missing a number of pieces. And then I think where the, the largest concern that we have is the six through eight and the, the high school marking. And so the, the kind of meets are kind of being, being moved, adding this other mark uh, for in progress. And I think the way that we have kind of perceived the in progress mark is is basically the kind of option to fail students at this moment. And so, um, you know, at this moment, it looks like the, you know, there will still be a lot of discretion um, for schools to interpret this policy. Um, but at this point, we know the high schools are still going to be using a grading scale for young people. And again, I think this, this really, I think, requires all of us to understand, to consider, like, what are the, I think, there's just to be very clear, like grades do not equal feedback. Feedback equals feedback. And like all of us are fully supportive of ideas around supporting feedback um, for young people so that they know how to navigate their experience. Um, and then there's this, this other idea that grades are, are a necessity to kind of motivate students to engage in, in so-called remote learning right now. And, you know, I think that other that kind of argument for me also, I think, is alarming because if we're you know, using a coercive uh, policy to ensure that young people participate in activities and connected to their experience, really trying to keep kids busy. And I think if we're going to just say, if we're going to do like treat schools as like daycares and busy work, then let's just say it out loud. And um, yeah, and, and so I, I think, um, you know, from our perspective, there was a need to recenter the conversation on the social emotional needs the feelings of belonging and community cohesion and wellness. And I think that itself is a really valuable and necessary role for our young people to play. I'm sorry, for our schools to play for our young people. Right. I mean, one of the made by the chance aid in response to a critique um, from someone in the coalition that signed the letter was that somehow if we didn't, um, grade students or at least, um, you know, make some of them um, um, named as needs improvement um, or course in progress, which basically means incomplete, um, teachers would not teach and students would not learn. And um, that was his primary argument as far as to make through the show. And my gut feeling about that is that's really sort of um, – I don't know, uh, undermining the dedication of teachers, first of all, who really do want to continue teaching and care about their students' progress. And also, what is, the, what is really the point of education if it's only to get a grade? I mean, don't you want your kids, students involved in learning because there's some inherent value to it and it excites them and it interests them and they have to, to keep um continuing for some sort of grade. So I, I thought that that was an unfortunate remark um, that the chancellor made. One of the other issues that really concerns me and I think other uh, parents as well is the uncertainty of what it means to have this course in progress in terms of what support are they going to have to actually get credit for their courses, be promoted and, and graduate from high school. I don't think the DOE has made it all that clear. Did you have any sense of that? For us, um, in the in our certainly part of our follow up questions that you know some of us are going to try to take to the panel for education policy tonight because you know one I think if if you know 
our big concern is like there, there's still uh, thousands of young people and, and those are the, our most vulnerable young people who have not even had access to devices, technology and still have like shoddy Wi-Fi. So how is it not that how are those young people who, have, again, not had access? How are they not going to be the automatic in progress students when they have in content um, that kind of address the idea that, you know, I think that it was a, a, a massive effort for the system that serves a million and, you know, 1.1 million kids to move to, uh, you know, what we're calling remote learning right now. But it's not the same. And mm -hmm. it is not it is not a, a, like a, a um, an experience that, that is going to be enriching, um, at, you know, obviously as as an in-person class experience. And so this idea that whatever, you know, doesn't get done during this remote learning session is going to somehow be fixed in a like summer remote learning session. I, you know, I, again, there's just, I think a lack of clear policy came out. Like, yeah, these are the questions that we need to really understand because what is it, you know, I, I understand that the city and schools don't necessarily want to be responsible for, you know, failing thousands of kids during a pandemic because that's just going to look really like terrible. But um, you know, I think we need to really consider like what what does the implementation of of this type of policy mean? Because again, superintendents, principals, and individual schools still have so much flexibility um, to navigate this policy. And you know, I, I do think that this this it's an, an align with the the priorities and. But I also mm -hmm. know that it's an opportunity for students who have, you know, historically not had a priority to serve vulnerable students to continue reinforcing, um, you know, policies and practices that are punitive. Um, and, you know, I have young people who, you know, are not getting any work right now. I have young people who are getting busy work that they find a waste of their time. And then I also have students who are getting more and more work and like, you know, are not being asked about what's happening in their homes or their families. And so that's why, you know, I think that there's still such a lack of clarity and, and we really needed the, you know, city. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate that that was not where um, they landed on this policy. But, you know, I think many of us are still committed to ensuring that uh, there, this policy is implemented and, and the, the flexibilities that exist around it are, are used to ensure that young people are not penalized in this moment. Right. I just wanted to point out the contrast between what the DOE has done and other large um, districts uh, in Los Angeles, um, which is the second largest district in the mm -hmm. country. They announced that every student is automatically going to pass this year because of the extraordinary right. and problems that they are. San Francisco and Seattle, they announced that they're going to give all students an A, which is right. personally what I would have done. I understand why some might ag not agree, but I think that that we all deserve A's right now. I think the teachers deserve A's. I think students deserve right, A's. Right. I think um, parents deserve A's for struggling right. through the incredible, um, you know, problems they face. And we're going to be talking to Naomi Pena about that in a moment. Um, but there's also another issue that I, that I wanted to uh, mention, which I think I've mentioned before, but I wanted your take on it as well, which is often, you know, some kids don't have devices and don't have good access to the internet. And the, and we have to make up for that lack by making sure they have proper devices and internet access. Um, and the chancellor has basically said that that's the silver lining in all this, that once this year is over, everyone should have an iPad and everyone should have some internet access. And so the digital divide will no longer exist. But actually what, what, what the research shows is that even when kids get Color, kids with special needs, 
do much more than they do in, with right. in-person education. And that any tendency of this school district or any school district around the country, either because it's cheaper to deal with budget cuts to move to that sort of instructional modality with the, with the excuse that now we've conquered the digital divide because all the right. kids have laptops or iPads is simply unacceptable. And I, I wonder what your view is uh, on that is. Yeah, well, I think you just you raised like my one of my kind of darker concerns of what like those who you know want based approaches are are like fiending to do in this moment. You know, I think some folks who are not you know being negatively impacted at least by the remote instruction experience, I think may you know I worry that folks will will start to disinvest in the like importance and needs of public education and like physical instructional spaces together so like that's my like larger concern is like what folks are try are going to like try to how, how folks are going to try to capitalize after this moment to like promote like technology and is having so i think you know my original approach to this was if we're giving a formal grade at all everyone gets an a2 and i think i got kind of balanced into a, a more moderate approach to this conversation and i think it's it's you know right where we landed but in general, the the like I'm happy that if if after this every student in the city has access to an iPad and Wi-Fi, like I think that's that's a feat and that that is a, a you know a, a valuable thing as well. But I mean I think what we've seen during this moment, families, those who don't have savviness, are all are still at a disadvantage. A lot of the resources DOE was originally putting out the first couple of weeks was all in English. Maybe some things are translated into Spanish. And so I think because we have such a diverse city with a, a wide set of needs, the assumption that just, at, you know, a device is going to, you know, connect a young person to content and curriculum, I think is, you know, I, I, I wish that it were that easy. And, but we just don't live in a, in, a, in a city or a country where we've invested enough. In our in our infrastructure for public education to ensure opportunity. And so, you know, who, you know, are basically, you, you know, we have parents who are be, who have become educators and, and parents are the ones who are, are trying to walk their students through, you know, through curriculum and content. And so, you know, I think the idea that this is going to be an equalizer in some way, I think, is is, you know, is naive. Um, I think anyone who's kind of promoted that idea, you know, I think misses the larger concerns that, um, you know, this is actually, I think, uh, going to create another opportunity gap for our mm -hmm. young people, which is why I think this grading policy, we're going to basically create another, uh, like, uh, like a, an academic opportunity gap, but then a social opportunity gap by holding back, potentially holding back thousands of, of black and brown students who have likely are like overlapping students with disabilities and, and, and multilingual learners. Right. And the the research also shows that in general, holding back kids does not lead to higher achievement in the end. It leads right. to higher dropout rates. And that's one of right. the fears that we've had. Um, you know, when Mayor Bloomberg um, ran the schools, he put in all these really oppressive um, for holding kids back. Um, which actually, the, you know, uh, studies have shown did lead to higher dropout rates. And right. now we're, you know, uh, luckily have a somewhat um, more rational administration in terms of, of, of the promotion policy, not dependent solely on high stakes tests. But right. if we end up holding back a lot of students, um, not only will that um, further restrict their opportunities and their incentive to learn, 
but also create larger classes and all sorts of other. Really want to do everything Tura has said. He wants next year to be the best academic year in New York City's history to make up for all the losses of this year. But we just don't see how that's going to happen if, number one, they're holding back a lot more kids. Number two, they're cutting the budgets by hundreds right. of millions of dollars, and right. that will lead to larger classes and loss of essential services. Anyway, I really want to thank you so much, um, 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 Matt, for being here. If people want to read the letter, it, I know it's on Diane Ravitch's blog now. Is there another place where it's located? Um, it's actually, I mean, but it's on a, it's on a like Google document, an open Google document. So I'm happy to share a link with you so you can share with people. Um, and then also I, I'll that. figure out a more uh, solid place to, to host the letter. But um, yeah, it's been linked uh, in a, a Chalkbeat article. And I'm really happy Diane Ravitch is, is hosting that as well. So yeah, thank you so much for the invitation and the conversation and all the work and conversations that you're having in this direction. And um, I think this has brought a lot of us together who have always been ideologically aligned. And but like now we have some some fights to, to get into uh, and unite around. So you know, any of the folks that, that, you, that listen, there's a, pep, a, a panel for education policy meeting tonight. There's big budget fights um, and there's some amazing leaders, um, yourself included, but uh, as well, who are leading the conversation on this um, that folks need to connect with. Um, and so please reach out to me directly on Twitter or email, and I'm happy to point folks in the right direction. But thank you. Yeah, on our blog is a, is the link to sign up for speak to speak tonight at the PEP meeting starting at 5:30 to about 6:15. We want as many people as possible to to speak up on this and and the other critical issues that will affect um, our students this year and for years to come. Thank you again, Matt. Thank you again for being here, and and hopefully you can come on again uh, later this year when things settle down a little, perhaps. Yeah, that would be nice. All right. Take okay. Care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. So in a minute, we're going to um, introduce Naomi Pena. Uh, this is Lainey Hampson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio. Naomi is one of the most amazing parent advocates I know. Uh, she has a full-time job. She's the mom of four kids and the president of Education Council One on the Lower East Side. For those who don't know, community education councils are the bodies that replaced our local community school boards in 2002. There's one for each of the 32 New York City school districts, plus there are three citywide councils that represent high school parents, special ed parents, and District 75 parents, parents of kids with the most seriously disabled children. They have mostly advisory powers, except they can approve changes in school attendance attendance zones, but they really have a very important role in amplifying the parent voice in a system where the parent voice has really been suppressed. And Naomi is one of these exceptional leaders who is serving her community in this way. Um, Naomi, are you on the line yet? Yes. Um, Oh, great. Uh, How are you? How are you and your family doing? Um, Good morning. Um, We are good. I know I all things considered, we are happy, we are healthy. Um, so I think the baseline is, is we're fine. And so can you tell me a little bit about the challenges you've been facing personally? I know that you have a full-time job and you have four kids and they all are trying to 
to do some sort of remote learning. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I have four kids in three different uh, school systems. Um, and, um, you know, I think every one of them is sort of managing on their own as best as they can. Some kids need me more than others. Um, for instance, I have t- twins, a boy and a girl, and my daughter is pretty assertive. So, you know, I just double check that she's getting the work done. And my son, on the other hand, who has an IP, he's my he's the one that I need to literally be sitting next to um, and making how sure. How old are they? How, how old they're are 10. They? They're 10. And, and can you explain what for people who don't know what an IEP is, what that means? Yeah, um, it's it's the acronym, another acronym soup um, for the individualized education plan. Um, my son has dyslexia, so he has sort of, you know, he struggles with reading and anything that requires reading, which is basically everything these days. Um, mm-hmm. So he needs sort of guidance and he needs to sit. I, I, and he also has virtual um, OT and speech um, lessons during the week as well. So I just have to make sure I get him up, get him on front of that camera so he can get his work done and join his class meetings. So it depends. Like my mornings literally are filled with my kid's schedule. Um, And then I have to jump in to do my own work. And then my evenings is filled with my community education council sort of meetings or, um, you know, or community meetings in general. So I have a full day. It sounds like more than a full day to me. It sounds like <laughs> a, a crazy making, overstretched, impossible day. Yeah, but, it's tough. Uh, um, now, uh, does your family have enough devices for your four kids? And what happens with, what happens with that? So we have been super fortunate, you know, that over the years I've I've managed to get every single kid that I have a a laptop. So they were pretty set. Um, however, because this is the way the universe works, about two weeks ago, two of them died. Um, mm-hmm. So then I, in the midst of, of sort of having a meltdown and trying, and then I took it to get fixed, and they were charging me an astronomical amount. Of money to get fixed, I quickly realized, you know, paying it would be ridiculous. I could just get a new laptop. Um, I had extended, I had shared this information with my middle school son's um, guidance counselor, and she immediately put me in touch with the principal that evening. He then in turn texts a school staff, and by 11 o'clock the next morning, they had biked over a new laptop with the wire. So at least I had an extra one. Um, so I know I'm super fortunate in that space. Um, I know countless families aren't. And that's that's been sort of the struggle that I have been trying to advocate for them um, to see how quickly they can get the devices. And once they do, you know, making sure that the devices could, accept the apps or allow the links to work. So it's it's been a sort of workaround for a lot of families. So I know that in one particular case, you really interceded and you got through the help of a reporter, got the mayor and the chance to change something about internet access for families. Can you explain that? Yeah, sort of, you know, one of the two glaring issues of supporting families is not just getting a device in their hands, but also getting 
broadband service. Um, so, you know, we do have a large population. We have a, about 175,000 families that live in temporary housing. They do not have access to their own uh, broadband service um, on top of everyone else who lives in the city. So, um, thankfully, the unsung heroes of this whole um, of this whole process has been the education reporters that I've established relationships with. Um, they were calling and saying, "How are you? What's going on?" They, you know, obviously they want a story, but they also want to see what's what what type of story to to write about. Um, and one of the things that quickly came up was the inability to have broadband. Now, two of the major um, cable providers in the city, Optimum and Spectrum, did step up early on and say, if if your if your city goes virtual and you do not have broadband, we will provide internet service for free, as long as you don't have service. So I have service, I wouldn't qualify, but someone who doesn't would. Now, the fine print said, as long as you never owed a balance to this company ever in your life. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening is that a reporter spoke to a family had, that had the service back in 2014, have a balance, and when they tried to call to sign up for service, they were told, no, you cannot, you need to pay this balance. You can't even pay it in installments. It needs to get paid up front. We can't help you. So thankfully, the, one of the Chalkby reporters asked um, the mayor about this, and he visibly got really upset. You know, physically, you can see it on his face, and he also you know, verbally expressed how upset he was. Um, and then I got word by that evening that um, they had both changed their policies to, for, you know, not prevent families from signing up. So it's little things like that, that helped, but it takes advocacy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and do you have a sense that, that, that um, the families that you represent are, are, managing at this point or how many of them are ma are not managing or how difficult is it especially you know in crowded households with parents one of whom may be um still going to work or 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 um sick at home in quarantine how are things working in your sense do you have any sense of that yeah you know i think i think families are trying to figure this out as they go along there's sadly there's no pandemic handbook for families that we can read up mm -hmm. um one of the things that you know my first question was always how are families doing with their devices that they requested um the latest number that i heard was to date about 20 about 2300 families in my school district requested a device now just for a snapshot that's a we have about 7,000 families mm -hmm. so that's a that's a large portion um, of families that have requested for a device which means they were all working you know off of worksheets um, mm -hmm. you know I think it's just a matter sadly one of the challenges we have is the inability to reach our families because we don't have access to our families so the only way I've been able to help any of them is literally by social media connections because I'm born and raised in this neighborhood. So I had a family who reached out to me um, because they had a school issued um, MacBook, but when they tried to join the, her daughter's Zoom, 
it prevented her from joining because the link was blocked. So I then had to call, um, figure out the school that she was in. Um, then I connected her to someone in the district office who helped her navigate that workaround. But again, she knew me. Mm-hmm. So I was able to expedite it. But there are countless other families that are having sort of challenges and don't know how to make it work. So, you know, that's this is one just of the. Yeah, it's one of the ongoing frustrations, I think, of parent leaders and CEC leaders is that the DOE has refused to make parent contact information available to them to help them reach out to parents um, in this this situation and in other situations for no good reason that I understand. I mean, they claim it's a privacy issue, but, you know, as someone who's worked in the area of privacy now for over five years, I can tell you there are many ways in which they could make that information available on an opt-out basis or otherwise, um, and they simply refuse to do it, which really does hamper the effectiveness of community education councils being able to do the work that they really need to work. Right, and especially in the situation that we're in now, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the schools are having trouble reaching their families for one reason or another. You know, how great would it have been to be in a partnership you know, and by no choice of their own, the vast majority of our principals and teachers don't live in our district. So we are members that actually live in the district, have kids that go to school in the district. So if I knew that there were families that couldn't be reached, it, it would not be an overreach for me to just, you know, knock on their door and see how they were doing and see how I can assist them. But, you know, I think these will be one of those learning curves for them. And I hope they will take this as a lesson to understand how important it is to have access to these families to help with outreach. So one of the thing issues that's come up a lot is um, the the chancellor uh, did an emergency proclamation that PTAs no longer had to meet monthly, which is in in the chancellor's regulations and, um, and I think the state law. And that um, they haven't yet made a decision on school leadership teams that I've heard of, even though that's required in state law. And apparently there may still be in negotiations with the principals union about this. School leadership Mm -hmm. teams, the collection of parents and school staff and the principal at every school that that is in charge of making comprehensive education plans uh, for to support and improve their schools. And in my view, anyway, um, it's more important for these teams to keep meeting monthly than ever before so that principals and, and teachers can get feedback in an organized way from parents and really, you know, make changes if necessary about how much homework is being assigned, who does and who does not have devices, what kinds of changes Um, parents really feel is necessary at this point. Do you have a sense of whether the PTAs and the SLTs are meeting in your district and and what's going on with that? Um, You know, I I would say that the vast majority of my schools have been. I literally just had, I had one school have a PTA meeting yesterday and another one had one last week. Mm -hmm. Um, So the plus side of this is that there is so much interest, there is so much need for information mm-hmm. that families are now able to join virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, and in both of these meetings, um, 
they overwhelmingly had over, you know, 70 people on the line. Mm-hmm. And they both school communities like, wow, this is like the most we've ever had in, in any meeting. Um, and I think my hope is that out of this process, people will understand that, especially school leaderships or, you know, central offices will understand that this is another way to reach families. Not everyone has the availability or the accessibility to sit in a school for an hour, hour and a half to join a PTA meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can join virtually. It's on your phone and you can mm-hmm. listen to it in headphones. Um, I think because of the dire need that our each school community has, there's an eagerness to continue to meet. There's an eagerness to engage the families. Um, I, my, my assumption, and I can be totally wrong, is the vast majority do are continuing to meet. You know, one of my school communities made public the SLT meeting, you know, obviously with with the caveat that you can't participate, but at least you can listen. Mm-hmm. So I think there is there is a need um, and there's a want solely based on information. And I think, you know, in a world of lack of information and lack of direction, I think engaging families on the ground, at least virtually, is, is where it should start. So one of the things that we were talking about in the earlier segment was the grading policy that the mayor just announced yesterday. I wonder what your feelings are about that. You know, I think I think there's a lot of feelings on this. Um, there are families who are really committed um, and have been advocating that, you know, there's some some sort of morphing of what exists now and I think dropping the lowest grade and there was there was there was a wide range and there was another set of, of people who would just let's just pass everyone. Um, I think personally, my personal opinion is I think this is a happy medium of both. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, for me, it's not on my top, you know, list of things that I'm worried about. You know, mm-hmm. I do have kids that are applying to middle school next year and applying to high school next year. So it's not like I'm not invested in the process. But I'll be completely honest with you. I, you know, I am more concerned with the stability and the mental capacity of my kids. You know, for instance, about two weeks ago, my middle schooler learned that there was a family that lost their dad to COVID. It really bothered him. And I walked in and he was crying in his room because he was really upset that, you know, me or his dad, we die. And I think that that should be more centered. You know, that we're all going to walk from this process. We're all going to walk away with some form of PTSD. And mm-hmm. I think we need to sort of address that, um, especially with our young people, because this is something that this is monumental in their lifetimes. This is equivalent to the 9-11 experience for um, those of us that lived through it. And we need to start addressing that. Um, and that, for me, is, is more paramount than their grading the grades, honestly. So that sort of brings me to another issue, which is the uh, the proposed budget cuts, because yeah. uh, with these, you know, huge budget cuts that are proposed for our schools, including a freeze on school staffing, $100 million cut directly from their budgets through the fair student funding system and others, it really risks that, and there may be additional cuts to come from uh, the governor's side, that really risks the loss 
of school counselors and social workers next year and the larger classes and other um, impacts, which would really make it much harder to recover from this sort of trauma for so many students. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that? You know, this is one of the things that really gets me worked up. Um, I, I find it incredibly offensive um, that every time there is a budget crisis, the first thing we are running to cut is education. Mm-hmm. Yet we are still demanding that our children stay on course, do stellar, and are supposed to pretend like nothing has ever happened. Personally, in my opinion, cutting schools in any capacity should be sacrilege, should not happen. Mm-hmm. And if anything, we should be, but you know, while other agencies are being fully funded or even extra funded during this crisis, no one's really caring about the 1.1 million kids that live in this district, in this school sit, in the schools. Um, in, in the city, and it's really frustrating. I think one of the one of the biggest challenges here is if you can continue to cut, this is the main source. This is the only source of revenue school communities have. Mm-hmm. So you start cutting, you and everyone is trying to figure out how to hire teachers, how to hire supportive staff. Um, then you're going to start looking at your PTA, and you're going to say, "Hey, PTA, I need help fundraising." Then you're, this is what's going to further the divide here that exists in the city. There's much to do about PTAs that raise six, six figures, and I'm blessed them that they can, but there are countless other PTAs that cannot do that. So now we're going to further put pressure in, into an, a system that's inequitable to begin with to continue the inequity for the sake of our children's education, and I think that is, you know, extremely offensive and blasphemous to even continue that conversation and and that way of operating our schools. So at this point, I really want to plug an op-ed in the Daily News today by Liat Olenek, who was um, on our show um, last week, a teacher who talks about the Cuomo proposed budget cuts and how they wouldn't need to happen if we merely taxed the mm-hmm. ultra wealthy and the billionaires and their second homes and their yachts and their planes, uh, private planes, the way we should, and that everybody's making sacrifices right now except for those people. And one of the points she makes is that with the budget cuts that are proposed for next year, um, they make our public schools even more deprived in terms of adequate services, which will cause many kids to flee possibly to the better funded charter schools, which are privately supported as well as publicly supported by the billionaires, many of whom happen to be Cuomo's um, contributors. And how that even though there is a class divide, definitely, between um, public schools with wealthier kid uh, families and less wealthy families and the PTA fundraising that goes on in the wealthier schools, in terms of amounts of money, that is not even close to the amount of money that these charter schools raised privately with hundreds of millions of dollars every year from their private donors, as well as the considerable public funding that they get. And so this is just, you know, one other aspect of this huge problem, 
you know, if you send your kid to a charter school or to a private school in New York City, you will be more or less protected from a lot of these cuts. But if you are a public school family, it seems like almost every time there's an economic downturn, um, your kid's education is undermined. And the last time we had a recession, which was in 2007, 2008, we have not even recovered from that one in New York City in terms of class size. And our class sizes, especially in the early grades, are much, much larger now than they were back then. And that was over 10 years ago. And I just can't even imagine um, what class sizes will be next year if these city and state budget cuts go through. Um, so I just wanted to to make that point about the inequities across the system are huge. And every time there's a downturn, the inequities get worse. And I agree with you, you know, schools should be the last thing to cut. One of the points that was made at the press conference that we held on Monday by council member Brad Lander is, though, is that there's a school staffing freeze proposed for, for, for our schools. There is no staffing freeze for police. And so they will continue to fill in any gaps from attrition for hundreds of millions of dollars. And meanwhile, every time a teacher or other school staffer retires or leaves from our schools, um, schools will not be able to rehire new ones. So that's another issue that, you know, um, we are contending with. And, um, you know, I just I just want to really talk about uh, you know what? What as a, as a as a, a, a community education council are these sorts of issues going to be addressed in your monthly meetings? And is there any way that um, people who are interested in listening in on those meetings can do so? Yes. Um, so actually, we had a meeting last week um, where uh, kudos to our, our local elected officials. I think every elected official has really stepped up. I would hope at least everyone, but at least in our district, um, our elected officials has really stepped up to um, be on the forefront of every single, you know, from food pantry issues to connecting people with their unemployment. So they've been joining um, all of these virtual meetings and they've been giving some great updates. And we heard from our local um, assemblyman, Harvey Epstein, who really gave us uh, the update on the budget. And, you know, when you talk about budgets, it's really depressing and it's not going to be fun. So there was a lot of discussion about how we can rally um, on the ground and to garner support for those things that are just, I think, are very basic. I think rather than cutting schools and cutting budgets across the board, let's be a little bit more creative on how we can generate revenue. So I think this will be a perfect opportunity for a lot of people, not just community education councils, but everyone in the city to start really thinking about what taxing the rich means, what taxing those second homes and, and, and planes and jets would mean and how much money that could pour back into our state, which would then impact and be poured at least some a majority of the revenue that's being cut can be poured back into the school system. So, you know, Harvey did suggest that we put together some resolutions and I think that's a good start. Um, I think it's it's also, at this point, we don't have to convince our local state senators or local assembly people. I think 
where the pressure needs to be on is with Cuomo um, and his his staff and, and understand that while we always want to conserve the budget, I know we're we're not in a good situation, but again, you cannot expect this is like Groundhog Day all over again. And, you know, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting and, and assuming you're going to get the same result. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So rather than every year complain about less low test scores and how kids aren't, you know, are not meeting standards, why not have a thoughtful conversation about how we can push um, those, those, the Cuomo's office to really start understanding that cutting schools is not the way and then infuse that into how we can, you know, make sure that the kids are learning and they're learning and they're anything that they're lacking, we can provide them. Mm-hmm. So that's the first way um, for us to join our meetings. We have, um, you can join on listserv. Um, right now our website is being, is being fixed, but you can always email us at CEC, uh, CEC1, number one, at schools.nyc.gov. Um, you can join our mail list. Not only do we send out information regarding our meetings, but we also share resources across the city about things you know that matter and, and are important to families. Yeah, so, you have one of the most active uh, announcements and, and your AA is terrific, I know. Yeah, and, I, kudos to her, she makes us look good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just, I wanna thank you for being here, Naomi, and, and maybe you can um, come again later in the year and give us an update on how things are going. Um, I know how incredibly busy you are and how your kids are probably yearning for your help right now. So I really appreciate you making time. And I, I think you must be superwoman. I, 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 you know, with everything that you're trying to juggle right now. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, so, so this is Lainey Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM. Um, you can also download it as a podcast if you missed the live version. But in any case, please consider becoming a WBAI buddy to talk out of school by logging into givetowbai.org or calling 516-620-3602. I hope you'll join us next Wednesday for another talk out of school. Uh, we're going to be interviewing the president of the UFT, Michael Mulgrew. Um, That's the head of the teachers union. We're going to be asking him how he would like to see schools designed and reconfigured next year to ensure that they are safe and supportive and help students make up for the academic losses and for many, the real suffering that so many of them experienced this year. Um, We will be asking him about the budget cuts as well and whether he can envision schools the way that some countries are now implementing them and states like California with smaller class sizes to ensure their safety. Until then, be careful, be safe, and thanks so much for listening.